You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. With me this week is Michael Farmer, assistant professor uh, professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you, sir? Pretty good, David. How about I, you? Oh, I apparently can't say the word professor, but other than that, pretty pretty <laughs> decent. Um, the the uh, chuckling guttural down there in the background is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English. I got it that time at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How goes it, sir? Oh, it's looking pretty good here. I'm I'm in the uh, the ante penultimate week of classes, which is a good <laughs> place to be. Fancy. Now, does that mean the accent is on this week? Uh, only in certain verb forms. Okay. Wow, that was that was deeply, <laughs> deeply nerdy. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Yeah, I didn't get that joke. Yeah, wh- one of my fantasies is that some super fan someday is going to do um, like a pop-up video for the Christian Humanist podcast, except it's going to be like pop-up footnotes. I still just want a TV Tropes page. <laughs> what success looks like in the 21st century yes well, well dear listeners this is the uh the th- what third third pitch um after two strikes uh we we have attempted to rec- record this episode twice and first um there was catastrophic weather and second there was just catastrophic catastrophe um this time we're all here and we're all recording, so huzzah, you know, knock on wood. Our topic today is J- yeah, John Donne's Holy Sonnets. Uh, so if you are not familiar with John Donne, the poet in general, uh, or the Holy Sonnets in particular, uh, we'd really like you to be. So that's, that's what we're up to today. But first, Nathan, can you give us a sketch of John Donne, the rake, the reverend, what makes him a metaphysical poet, and where do the holy sonnets fit into his body of work, I guess? I want to start first with the notion of, of a metaphysical poetry. Uh, this is a term that really kind of comes into the world of literary criticism in the late 18th century. Uh, Samuel Johnson, he's writing not about John Donne, but about Abraham Cooley, the poet, uh, and he accuses him of being, quote, a race of writers that may be termed the metaphysical poets, close quote. One of the things about metaphysical uh, is that it is in some sense a slur against those who would believe in metaphysical transformation of one thing into another by ordinary means. In other words, a sort of an anti-Catholic slur. Uh, Mm. Johnson is accusing Cooley, uh, who was himself Catholic, and this group of poets 
of being fascinated with, you know, sort of transforming things uh, by simple force of wit from one thing to another. Accompanying that are, are, are similar accusations of being sort of bloodless poets, passionless poets, so on and so forth. They really don't become rehabilitated, if you will, until the modernists pick them up uh, long about the turn of the 20th century. So metaphysical, generally speaking, you know, refers to these extended metaphors. They get called conceits, uh, and we'll be talking about those at some length, so I won't belabor that anymore. As far as Dunn's life, we do get uh, a number of sources that talk about his biography, uh, one of them from the famous fisherman Isaac Walton, uh, and he doesn't have a whole lot to say about John Dunn's early life other than when he went to law school, uh, he was a bit of a party animal. Uh, we do get you know, some references also from the period uh, to sort of two phases in Dunn's life, Jack Dunn, the rake, the law student, the one who was part of this quotery of poets uh, that liked to discuss and perhaps practice the seduction of women, and then Dr. Dunn, uh, who later on becomes a very devout and very serious man of the church. I don't think it's coincidental, again, uh, because there are certain, shall we say, associations between religious traditions and personality types there in the 17th and 18th centuries. That John Dun that Jack Dunn, pardon me, uh, had not yet signed the oath of supremacy, declaring that the Church of England was in fact the the chief church of Jesus Christ, and that the the Roman Church was not. And then Doctor Dun Doctor Dunn, who had in fact uh, converted himself to the Church of England and become clergy. So here's what makes it even more tricky: is that Dunn's poems are in circulation during his own lifetime, but because the convention then was only to publish the opera of classics. So mm -hmm. Virgil, Ovid, Homer, so on and so forth. The works of John Donne don't get published until after he is dead. Hmm. So the actual publication date of poems like The Flea, which uses the metaphysical conceit of the flea who bites the lover uh, and then bites the beloved, therefore commingling their blood, which is just a step short of marriage and therefore, you know, makes it nonsense for them not to do it. Um, that's the sort of thing you get from, uh, you know, Jack Dunn, if you believe that biography. Uh, you know, that sort of thing uh, appears in the same year as the Holy Sonnets that we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, David, I, you know, I, I, I would just kind of say that uh, you've got this really nice, tidy story that historical details tend to muddy up. Yeah. Well, and you know, you really want to be able to, and when I say you, I mean me, and apparently <laughs> a lot of other people in literary history, um, have a hard time squaring the character of the persona in um, The Flea or the other kind of naughty Jack the Rake poems with the the venerable... Dr. Dunn. Um, mm -hmm. And so that, that kind of biographical um, reconstruction uh, is there mostly because we uh, f feel like uh, we, we get some kind of sense of sincerity, some kind of sense of uh, the character of the voice in the poem tracks with the character of the person. Mm -hmm. Um. 
you know, for for you know for for various reasons, we you know that's that's what we assume. So right, it's the Shakespearean love problem. Yes, you do, you don't want the person who writes these wonderful poems to be a a dull middle class bourgeois kind of dude. Yeah. Yes. 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 Exactly. <laughs> exactly. His his life must be as you know as I don't know erotic and libidinous <laughs> as his poetry is. Hmm. What you you mentioned that there's um, multiple poets who are considered metaphysical poets. Who are some others? If our reader, if our listeners decide they have a taste for this kind of thing, well, certainly. I mean, Richard Crashaw is certainly one of the big ones. Uh, Abraham Cooley, to be sure. Uh, mm-hmm. To some extent, Andrew Marvell and the early Milton get lumped in. Although the early Milton's a harder case to make. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've never heard that. Well, I yeah. Earlier than that, I mean, you get Thomas Carey, mm-hmm. uh, you get, you know, to some extent, George Herbert. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it's, you know, these, to a large extent, you know, sort of early to mid 17th century poets uh, who are, you know, doing, for the most part, shorter poetry. Mm-hmm. I gotta, I gotta make a pitch for our the the only American metaphysical poet, Edward Taylor. Mm. Oh yes, yes. I'm sorry, Michael. The author of Hus Wifery. How 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 dare I omit the American? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> well, I mean, speaking of Americans, it's worth noting that Dunn and the other metaphysicals were brought back to popularity, or mm-hmm. maybe to popularity for the first time by T. S. Eliot. Oh yeah, who writes a uh, who writes an essay of that name, the metaphysical poets in the 1920s, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. Also, John Donne is the favorite poet of the fictional detective Lord Peter Whimsey. So if you are like me and see Lord Peter Whimsey as a um, worthy role model for life, I guess you need to like Donne too. Ellery Queen likes uh, Edward Taylor better, I think. Ah, is that true or did you just make that up? No, I just made that up. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Ellery Queen. Whatever. Anyway, no, actually, I, I kind of like Ellery Queen. Whatever. So, moving on. Holy or not, uh, these are all sonnets, and they're in a sonnet sequence. So, Michael, uh, we need to say something about sonnets. How do they work? What sort of subjects and themes do we normally expect from not just a single sonnet, but a sonnet sequence? Well, David, as you may remember from your freshman comp class, <laughs> sonnets are 14 lines of iambic pentameter. Uh, that would be five feet, in which the feet are unstressed, stress. Da-da, 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 da-da. Uh, so 14 lines of that. Um, <laughs> there's all different sorts of rhyme schemes. Duns are mostly Petrarchan or Italian sonnets, which means... Um, they they rhyme A B B A C D D C and then the final six lines go all over the place. Mm-hmm. They're usually three three rhymes in those six lines, but the order they come in is different. Generally, um, sonnets are divided into an octet and a sestet, which is to say eight lines and then six lines. The octet presents the problem of the sonnet and the sestet presents the solution Mm. and then the turn from the octet to the sestet is called the volta so a classic example is Dunn's Holy Sonnet 4 Oh My Black Soul Uh, the octet tells us about how his soul is destined to be damned and how he has no hope and then the sestet tells us that repentance and grace will bring him forgiveness that's a fairly standard setup for a sonnet 
Mm-hmm. Sometimes sonnets are divided into three quatrains with a couplet at the end instead. In that case, each quatrain would express a different, though related, idea. It would build from quatrain to quatrain, and then the couplet would tie things together. Holy Sonnet 10, Death Be Not Proud, which I know we'll talk about in a minute, uh, uses that format. Hmm. Uh, The sonnet is developed by Italian. Sonnet means little sound or song in Italian. Uh, Medieval and Renaissance sonnets were almost always love poems. Often idealized love, the courtly love tradition. The poet is talking to his untouchable lady in that tradition. So you think of Petrarch's La Ura, which I think is how you pronounce it, even though it sounds like a cartoon uh, (laughs) car horn. La Ura. Uh, And Beatrice, Dante's Beatrice. Yeah. Beatrice for the dilettantes. Uh, Dunn <laughs> plays with that courtly love tradition several times in the Holy Sonnet sequences. He's he's doing something. I, I'm no I'm no history of early modern English poetry, so I don't want to I don't want to say he's completely innovating. But he is using he is using a uh, literary tradition that is deeply associated with vulgar love uh, mm-hmm. and and using it using it to express something spiritual instead mm-hmm. he and by the way he specifically references that tradition in holy sonnet three mm-hmm. uh, oh might those t- sighs and tears return again is the name of that one petrarch is by far the most famous sonneteer of the italian renaissance in english uh, it's shakespeare but shakespeare is not the first english sonneteer um the sonnet enters the language through Sir Thomas Wyatt and also the Earl of Surrey and what we call the Shakespearean rhyme scheme was actually invented by Surrey, not by Shakespeare, which seems unfair, doesn't it? <laughs> he doesn't even get a name. He's just called the Earl of Surrey. Uh, that Shakespearean rhyme scheme is A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G with that couplet at the end. Sidney's Astrophel and Stella is the first major English sonnet cycle. David, didn't you have a sonnet from that read at your wedding? Am I losing uh, my mind? Was that my wedding? Uh, it was from the Amoretti. The Amoretti. Yeah. So, I can't so, remember which so, early modern poem Victoria had read at our wedding. Yeah, that was. Uh, yeah, it was from Spencer's Amoretti that we had that one done. The, Shakespeare's sonnet cycle, of course, is the most famous English right. sonnet cycle. Those are the ones everybody knows. The sonnet is pretty out of fashion by the time Dunn writes them, so he's he's not on the cutting edge in terms of literary form, and it's Milton who revives the sonnet. Um, Milton Milton has how many, Nathan? 26, 27 sonnets? Oh, I don't have the number ready to hand, but that sounds about right. Yeah, it's somewhere in the 20s. And then, because all the romantic poets love Milton so much, the, the sonnet um, makes a makes a comeback in the 19th century. And to some extent, it's never gone away. I mean, like e. E. many of E.E. E. Cummings' poems, which we think of as being very formally inventive, many of them are sonnets with just weird punctuation and capitalization <laughs> technique. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Have I left anything out from the history of the sonnet? Anything relevant? No, I, I, I think you, you've, got, uh, you've got all the relevant bits in there. I mean, a sonnet is always going to be an argument, you know, whether it's the, the eight line, six line form or the, or the, you know, the quatrains in the couplet form. Um, and then that, uh, that pose of the, of the speaker in the sonnet of, you know, the lover of the standoffish beloved. Um, I mean, that's, that's, that's really the key is turning that into the religious register. Mm-hmm. Which is which is incredibly interesting because uh, we're used to in in Christian circles of seeing uh, God as the lover and the wooer, and the soul as the the beloved of the wooer. See Song of Solomon, um, 
but Dunn's, Dunn's version is uh, the opposite. That's interesting, I think. Well, let's get into it. Uh, the f- very beginning is the very best place to start. I heard that at some point. And I'm going to talk about three. Um, I'm going to have us talk about three of uh, my favorites among the Holy Sonnets. And then you guys are going to get to pitch one each. But beginning with the first one, Nathan, uh, it sets up the major tensions that Dunn's working with through this whole sequence, uh, especially the idea of opposed forces at work. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's a thread that runs through the whole thing. So what kind of work, whether theological or psychological or scientific or poetic, whatever, what kind of work is this sonnet doing to put these ideas in play? Thou hast made me, and shall thy work decay, is the opening line. And this rhetorical question does set up uh, a tension that runs through all 19 of these sonnets, namely that the human soul is a divine creation, and therefore by nature good, and yet it seems inclined in its own nature to its own destruction, and to its own abandonment of God, and so on and so forth. So in this sonnet... um, the moment, if you will, the psychological moment, is that in which the pleasure of worldly pleasures have just just subsided, pardon me, and it's just before the sort of overwhelming regret takes over. It's, it's the moment of looking around and saying, oh no, what have I done? What kind of situation am I in? Mm. Uh, this is despair. This is terror. Uh, this is a metaphor, and again, this is where the uh, metaphysical part of the metaphysical poets come in, uh, in which the soul itself, though it seems made to rise to God, nonetheless seems to be exhibiting a certain gravity, a certain disposition away from God into the depths of the earth. So there's all kinds of things going on here. Uh, You know, one of the the, one of the telling lines for me uh, is not one hour myself I can sustain, thy grace my we- may wing me to prevent his art, and thou like adamant draw mine iron heart. So the nature of the soul to rise doesn't actually exhibit itself until God acts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is once again the paradox because on one hand, you know, uh, done, you know, being a good, you know, early modern uh, thinker, you know, probably wants to talk about the the grace of God as being sort of imminent as, you know, pervading the world and so on and so forth. And yet uh, there is definitely this tendency in this poem and in, you know, his psychology more generally uh, to emphasize in a very reformed way uh, the need for direct and willed divine action for those things to happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, So again, you know, uh, the paradox is really where it's at. The soul seems to have in its nature to seek God, and yet it doesn't. Uh, sin shouldn't be the primary nature of the soul, and yet it's acting as the primary nature. And because of that, we have this image of the adamant that draws the iron mm-hmm. up from the earth uh, in order to you know, kind of deal with this paradox, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, what what else is going on here? I'll point out the the one time in this poem you see him be active, you see Dunn be active. It's to run to death. Yeah, in mm-hmm. line three. So so all human action is malevolent in some way, or at least self destructive. Mm-hmm. 
the other thing I see in this poem that comes up again and again in the cycle is an implicit soul-body dualism that, mm-hmm. that begins with that very first line. It's the body that's going to decay. Um, and and he, he returns to that dualism in sonnets five and six before correcting it in sonnet seven. Not so much correcting it as resolving it. Sonnet mm-hmm. seven, he says, Arise from death, you numberless infinities of souls, and to your scattered bodies go. So the dualism ends at the general resurrection. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would w- want to point out is uh, line four, all my pleasures are like yesterday. So mm-hmm. you, you have now that you have the end of Jack the Rake, depending on what you think of that persona. Um, but you, you have you have someone whose pursuit of God has made his former pleasures pathetic. And, and again, I, I'll point to Sonnet three, where he he repents of those those pleasures, uh, mm-hmm. where he where he has to he has to change his life around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I, th- I think whatever theology we derive from this, I find really interesting the uh, the angle of the kind of emotional or dare I say existential um, experience of whatever metaphysical or theological power forces are at work of of feeling powerless. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's the. Uh, that's the thing that the poet is is focusing on. Um, he's not. Uh, this is not the institutes. This is not you know Augustine expounding on you know the 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 power of indwelling sin, um, or Luther on same. Uh, this is someone talking about how how he feels, um, which is uh, super interesting to me. Well. Uh, as as you gentlemen have pointed out, these are these are tensions that run throughout the whole of the holy sonnets. That sense of distance that the persona has from God, um, in particular of this principle of death and sin within him that's pulling him away, and the desire for an intervention. Well, um, holy sonnet ten is one that I present as an option for the poetry explication essay in um, one of my composition classes. Uh, here at HBU, students are always attracted to its defiance in the play, in the face of death. Uh, they like that attitude, but they very seldom understand the reasons that Dunn is presenting for that defiance. So, Michael, what what are the reasons for death to not be proud? And do you think those reasons actually work very well? Well, I'll point out, we did talk about this several years ago in an episode on death. So what I'm about to say, I can't remember if I said it then or one of you said it then. So I may be (laughs) stealing from you, but I think we all steal from each other pretty regularly. Um, This, as I said earlier, has a quatrain couplet structure. So three related quatrains and then a couplet that resolves them. Mm -hmm. The first quatrain says, death's not so great because no one stays dead. The second quatrain says, death is different in degree, but not in kind from sleep, and so we've got no reason to be afraid of it. Mm -hmm. The third quatrain says, if death's so great, why does it hang out with such nasty people? (laughs) And it also says, death is not much more powerful than drugs, which is kind of a variation of the second quatrain. Mm -hmm. The couplet is the most interesting part of the poem. It says, one short sleep pass, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more death shall die so i said that the i said that the couplet resolves those first four first three quatrains but that's not really true it really kind of corrects them 
because the other the other the other reasons he gives here are largely pagan reasons for not fearing death there's some hmm. epi, uh, echoes of epicurus in them um uh but but there's not there's not really a christian there's not really a christian presence in the poem until those final two lines so mm-hmm. i i think the point here is that those earlier attempts to scare death don't work that that this is a bravado that fails to convince Dunn. And then it's the the last two couplets that finally allow him to rest. Now, I don't think the poem works very well because I I think until you read it many times and think about it a lot, it is not clear that's what's happening. Mm. Um, to to me, maybe maybe we needed a fifteen line poem <laughs> with the uh, <laughs> with the with the thirteenth line saying saying like oh but none of that stuff works or maybe maybe i'm just dumb you know maybe i'm maybe i'm asking for the poem to be dumber than it should be mm-hmm. but i i don't think i don't think the the wilting of those initial justifications for not fearing death i don't think that wilting is clear enough in the poem i think you really have to dig to find it mm-hmm. am i way off what do you think nathan i, I do think it's interesting that what the first three groups do, I mean, is to diminish death sort of ontologically, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. so that by the time you do get to the final couplet, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I Michael reads it as, you know, sort of a correction of the first three. Uh, the reason that, you know, one, now that I've read this several times, like Michael was talking about, uh, it leaves me a little bit uneasy because the final death that thou shalt die uh, which, you know, in, in St. Paul, you know, the great rhetorical question, you know, death, where is thy, thy sting, has a certain rhetorical force precisely because death is the great enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, you know, it is the the power that overcomes God's good creation, and yet Christ is the one who is mighty to overcome it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, here, the first 12 lines... Uh, pretty much, you know, in, in that, you know, Michael hears Epicurus, I hear Plato, diminishes the, well, I mean, you know, says death, where is thou sting? Not because Jesus came around, but because the sting wasn't very stingy in the first place. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, where Michael wants to read it as a sort of misconceptions corrected by a couplet structure I'm a lot more unsettled for it precisely because by the time you get to the couplet, there's not that much need for the couplet. Mm-hmm. So, so D- David B. R. Tudor here, teach us to read done. Huh. I, I like, um, see, I, I had always read it as, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is an example of, of the metaphysical poet using his metaphysical wit um, to a kind of uh, to to the end of um, of consolation, right? Uh, not a consolation of philosophy, but a consolation of poetry. Um, but I would agree with with Michael that all of that his his analysis in the first uh, in the initial quatrains um, doesn't work because they're all metaphors. Like none of, none of them actually changes death or says anything in particular about what death is. Um, all of them are all of them are m- metaphysical conceits that 
depending on whether or not you think that mere metaphysical conceit can actually change the thing, you know, like you talked about earlier, Nathan. Um, I, I, I don't know that, that any of them actually transforms death, right? It's, it's not until you get to that final couplet that something concrete in relationship to death is referenced. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it nonetheless reads very sincerely to me. Um, were it not for the fact that I know this is not the only thing that Dunn ever wrote about death, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I might wonder whether or not he actually thinks the first three quatrains are good reasons. But... Mm-hmm. Um, but one of his most famous sermons, Death's Duel, is is dealing with dealing with the issue of death and especially consolation in the face of death and Christ's victory over death. And he does it in, I think, better ways than this poem does. Mm-hmm. Talk about that for a little bit, David, because I, uh, I I read that years ago and I glanced over it before this episode. But I the the structure of it I don't have at my fingertips. Mm-hmm. Well, in uh, in Sonnet 10, you have the persona of a witty poet um, attempting to uh, disarm disarm his 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 enormous opponent via wit, um, and whether or not it's sex- successful, you know, I think mileage varies on that. But in Death's Duel. Um, it's the last sermon that uh, I, I believe it's the last sermon that he preached. He preached it a, about a week before his death. Um, mm. The there uh, full, full uh, contemporary descriptions of of that particular sermon uh, basically describe him as being incredibly elderly, uh, sick. It looked as if you know, f- uh, it looked as if he was already dead. <laughs> and was preaching to them as a revivified corpse from beyond the grave. Um, so uh, apparently an enormous impact. It was print, it was printed individually and on the, on the, f- uh, one of the first pages is, is actually a, um, I don't know if it's a woodcut or if it's an engraving, but it's, it's a picture of incredibly old John Donne just before his death posing as if dead wrapped in a shroud Mm -hmm. so um he is uh very very close to confronting actual death right this is not youth who is holding death at a distance um but in that in that sermon one of the things that he deals with is the degree to which death is stalking us and dominating us at every point in our existence beginning with the womb um he talks about um death in the womb he talks about um how close we are to death even in our birth um he talks about growing older as a kind of death by degrees um this the sermon is is absolutely not pulling any punches it's not concealing any of that um kind of visceral material corporeal reality of death behind metaphor it's mm-hmm. it's it's the opposite so when when he makes the move at the end of the sermon to talk about christ 
um, Christ entering into death and then coming out the other side for our sake. Um, it has a different feel, I think, than it does in this couplet. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of think about Sonnet 10 and the Holy Sonnets in relationship to Death's Duel in the way that I think about his love poem, The Flea, in relationship to all of his other love poetry. <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, if all you knew was The Flea, you'd think that he was a very clever guy who didn't know how to actually talk to a woman. Mm-hmm. But he's got all the other poetry that kind of disproves that. Well, moving to Holy Sonnet 14, Batter My Heart, Three-Person God. This is probably one of the most, uh, if not the most famous of the Holy Sonnets. Uh, one of my, I first encountered it in a sophomore lit uh, class. And actually in my very first semester teaching, I had a student approach me in a composition class with this poem uh, because she was in a chorale that was singing a musical version of it. And so, hmm. um, yeah, this I feel like this poem has been stalking me for years. Anyways. It must have been Britton's version, right? Benjamin Britton? He put the Holy Sonnets to music. I think it was. I think, that, I think that's right. That's beautiful stuff. Anyway, Holy Sonnet 14 is without a doubt one of my favorite Christian poems outside of holy writ um i suspect that that reflects my theological biases <laughs> so i'd like to hear from someone with a different set of theological biases um what do you think of dunn's vision of loving compulsion nathan uh well first of all i'll just go ahead and uh, show my cards and say that uh, uh charlie doyle uh professor of english at university of georgia ruined this poem when he told a story about a uh I believe a sophomore lit paper he received in which uh, the student rendered the very first word of the poem as a cooking technique uh, so that, you know, the, the, the poet's asking God to make a hush puppy of the heart. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, so first of all, I just can't hear it without, you know, thinking of frying me up. Sweet Jesus. Uh, but once I you get know, past uh, that... You know, talks about the boundaries of hermeneutics, Nathan, and I think that student <laughs> might have stepped over them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Stanley Fish's notion of uh, interpretive communities comes in, to, comes in handy there. Though there is a <laughs> Southern Church cookbook title right there, right? Just, just waiting. <laughs> Batter my heart, three-person God. <laughs> At what point is what point does God turn my liver into congealed jello salad? <laughs> Excellent. Beyond that though, the vision of divine love in this poem is something that uh like like Sonnet One, I mean to return to those themes, overcomes the tendencies that have entered into the soul. Uh mm. so the soul's viceroy, to use this poem's uh, you know, vocabulary is reason and it has been commissioned to defend the soul against sin and against death uh but you know the poet says you know reason has, is captived and proves mm -hmm. weak or untrue mm -hmm. so the soul uh not only has been failed by reason but has been betrayed by reason so that it actually becomes an ally of the occupying forces mm. uh now Oddly enough, and I mean, I think this says more about me than it says about the poem, if it had done this strictly in meta military metaphors that way, I would mm -hmm. find it a lot more uh, 
comfortable. Yeah. As it stands, though, I mean, it uses these images of ravishing and of seduction and of, you know, a range of romantic approaches that, you know, spans seduction on one end and sexual assault on the other end. Uh, And, you know, there's never any sense that, you know, the poem condones it outright. So I don't want to come across as someone who says, you know, throw it out because, you know, it's rapey or whatever the the goofy adjective is Mm -hmm. but i will say that you know dunn is a masterful poet in that he takes these images that i i have to think even in the 17th century are going to upset and throw into turmoil your expectations so Mm -hmm. like david said uh you know the sonnet as a form is poetry written from the lover to the beloved Mm-hmm. And in this case, the poet becomes the beloved who is captured and who invites, like I said, this range of romantic responses from the lover. And in that case, uh, you know, or I mean, in the poem, pardon me, sorry, uh, it plays on this paradox, you know, in, in ways that at the same time confirm things that, you know, I think David, you know, is right to affirm theologically that. Uh, our reason is not sufficient to save us from sin and that God does have to intervene in a fairly direct way. And, you know, um, all of these things, you know, I I would basically agree with. David and I might disagree on the margins. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when you cast it in this romantic vocabulary and in this sexual vocabulary, it becomes like I said, extremely troubling. And I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I realized when I was, you know, thinking about how I was going to talk about this, that I would probably four or five times run myself into a dead end and then have to double back. And I think I got up to seven. So <laughs> Michael, do you have anything more intelligent to say about this one? Well, David Lyle Jeffrey and Gregory Millay have the following to say. Ravish here does not, as some editors claim, necessarily mean rape, but as today can also refer to the kind of passionate love implicit in the biblical metaphor of Christ as the bridegroom coming to marry the church, which, you know, Dunn mm-hmm. does address openly in Sonnet 18. I think that's a bunch of malarkey. I think it is a strong image. <laughs> I think it's a, a purposely strong image. I think Dunn knows exactly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. I think of that famous Flannery O'Connor uh, quote, to the hard of hearing you shout, and to the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he finds himself in extremis. He he can't do the things he wants to do. He can't mm-hmm. love God the way he wants to love him. He can't let go of sin the way he wants to. And so he needs drastic measures um, from God. And so I think he uses that word ravish uh, on purpose. And I I don't think I, I don't think we I don't think we do much good by trying to trying to uh, soften the force of that blow. Mm-hmm. Is it possible? And this is um, this this is linguistically possible. Also, <laughs> also legally possible um, because uh, there was not uh, at this time yet a a strong legal distinction. Um, raptus uh, can mean. Um, sexual assault in the way Mm -hmm. that rape means now Um, it can also mean abduction Mm -hmm. Uh, so that um, 
the 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 rape of the Sabine women is not exactly the same as the rape of Lucrece. Right. Um, when it, and, but that same word is is kind of traditionally used, so that um, it, it's actually one of the the things that makes it difficult to deal with uh, the fact that uh, Chaucer was at one point um, accused of complicity in a rape. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so, and it's entirely unclear from the from the court documents was that a sexual assault or was it a uh, was it an abduction? And often at the at this time, um, if if an elopement was unsuccessful, uh, the unhappy parents would press charges of raptus, um, right, ag- right, against the man. Um, I mean, given the fact that in those last three lines, um, imprison and enthrall are used in parallel with ravish. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that that's, that's the closest I get to being more comfy with this. Yeah. Although what militates against that is the opening lines that said, you've already tried to knock and to breathe and to shine and to seek. Yeah. Uh, so none of that works. So knock the hell out of me. Right. Literally. Break, yeah. blow, burn and make me new. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that, if 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 that kind of uh, I I I need to. I'm the princess in the tower. Come abduct me. <laughs> also mm-hmm. works, but yeah. oh, I think both of those images are there, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it, again. I mean, it would be much more comfortable if it were just the metaphors in the last three lines. Yeah. But as it stands, we got to put them next to the first three lines. <laughs> right. Right. See, I always take the batter and the batter and burn as a siege. Yeah, uh, it is. It is. And I mean, you know, uh, you know, in Shakespeare's Rape of Lucrece, he describes what Tarquin does to Lucrece as a siege. <sighs> Dang it, Gilmore! I was hoping you were going to bring <laughs> that one sorry. up. I'm sorry. Because I already thought I'm, about I'm, that. I'm being negative, Nelly. Here, I'm sorry. Uh, all right. Well, worth noting. There's at least some consent. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's it's actually requested. Well, yeah. It's the dualism, right? You know, I I don't want you, so take me because I do want you. Somebody needs to write a terrible paper on Nirvana's "Rape Me" as a uh, as an updating of this poem. <laughs> I hope so. Well, first of all, I assume someone already has. Uh, but uh, just kidding. That, that's that's how low of you I have of academic publishing. But uh, yeah, I, I I can't think that that hasn't occurred to somebody, and I can't think that a journal hasn't picked it up. Is that an after you get tenure article? Oh, oh I, no, that's like an enfant terrible article. You know, yeah, that's, it really that's is. A, it really that's is. That's a that's uh, a hip up and comer in 1997. Okay, exactly, okay. exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. Um, sorry. Apologies if anybody is you know made deeply uncomfortable. But it, I, I, th- can we agree that it, that is at least one of Dunn's goals? Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> yep. Also, apologies if the author of that article is listening. <laughs> I apologize for nothing. Awesome. <laughs> well, I have pitched my favorites, so I'd like each of you to p- pitch one more. Um, what other sonnet belongs in this episode and why? Michael? 
I'll do this relatively quickly because I know we're running out of time. Sonnet 6, which is, this is my play's last scene. Hmm. Death plays a role in most of these sonnets, but I think he's most articulate about death here, even more so than in Sonnet 10. Death here is completely under divine control. He says, here heavens appoint my pilgrimage's last mile. So this Mm -hmm. is not coming as a surprise to God. God knows that he's about to die, even though I guess he probably wasn't. Um, but, But the point here is that death is not a force in its own. It's a force under divine control. Um... Again, death here is the duelist one. It's going to sunder body from soul, but death brings this like triple homecoming. The soul goes to heaven, hmm. the body goes into the earth, and the sins, which had been adhering to both of them, go to hell. So the body, even though it's separated from the soul, is also in its way purified because the sins that marked it have gone back to their home. Hmm. That means that death is the ultimate opportunity for God to impute righteousness. And that's the, that's the term Dunn uses. Impute me righteous, thus purged of evil, for thus I leave the world, the flesh, and devil. Hmm. Better reason not to fear death than, uh, than Sonnet 10, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. And I'll just add, Michael, I mean, that this dualism we've been talking about is not something that is alien to the New Testament. I mean, you know, the, mm-hmm. the martyrs in white robes and the apocalypse are calling out to God, how long, how long? And I mean, what are they waiting for? They're waiting to return re-embodied to an earth that has been brought into the kingdom of God and divine justice and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Right, but the the dualism we're talking about is a temporary dualism yes. that will be undone by the general resurrection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. which like I said, I mean, it is not alien to the imagery of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. No, I, I hope I didn't suggest that it was. I, yeah. I certainly wasn't calling it well, no, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't think you did. I just want our, our, our listeners to be real clear. I mean, it, it's not that Dunn is introducing a, a, an unbiblical dualism into this Christian poetry, but he is bringing the dualism that is at home in the New Testament to bear in English poetry. Yes. N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright points out that all, uh, the, uh, maybe the majority of Christians believe a kind of minor heresy, right? That that heaven is the end goal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the general resurrection actually is. That's why I think Sonnet 7 is so important. Mm-hmm. 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 Because in Sonnet 7, Dunn reconnects body with soul. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not dualism qua dualism that's the problem. It's the Gnostic dualism in which the way to freedom is to permanently be cut off from that dirty, sinning body. So, Nathan, what do you want to pitch? I want to pitch uh, sonnet number 11, which is probably not my favorite sonnet, not the one that I would read as sort of devotional reading, but it does present a certain kind of ethical challenge that I've been thinking about a lot lately, so I want to talk about it. Uh, Spit in my face, you Jews, and pierce my side. Buffet and scoff, scourge and crucify me. For I have sinned and sinned, and only he who could do no iniquity hath died. This is how this sonnet begins, and the argument uh, in that good metaphysical tradition uh, is that because I ultimately, as someone who has been saved by Jesus but continues to sin, commits greater crimes against Jesus by crucifying him daily than Mm. the Jews did who crucified him once, I'm ultimately even worse than the Jews. (laughs) (laughs) Now, yeah. on its face, if you read it that way, and I won't say on its face because I just gave it a definite spin, if you read it that way, then this would be a poem to consign to the dustbin, perhaps to the furnace, and we would rightly say, never read this thing again. Mm-hmm. My instinct, though, is that reading it with some notion of 
historical context, reading it with certainly a critical eye and with a willingness to say, these are rhetorical moves that as Christians we ought not to make, and then making theological reasons for those objections. I think that really standing in the face of this poem, it's Sonnet 11, listeners, you really should check it out, really does provide occasion for a far more complex and a far more challenging engagement with historical texts like the Holy Sonnets. Hmm. Yeah, so you can't just say yucky anti-Semitism, let's, you know, consign it. Yeah, and you also can't just, in a non-complex way, saying, well, yeah, I kind of am worse than a Jew. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least you shouldn't, let me put it that way. Can we consign Dunn's terrible half-mustache to the dustbin of history? <laughs> I'll make that image the cover the cover art so everybody can see what I mean. The, I, I have been grossed out by Dunn's half-mustache since I was 16 years old. It's, well, it's the longest tradition in my life. Uh, on All that, right. Michael, let there be agreement. <laughs> oh, man. Well, okay, so, yeah, I guess that's where we're going to into you uh in, in this uh episode for you dear <laughs> listeners is um with a joint condemnation of uh dunn's facial hair so seriously he looks like he, it looks like a 13 year old's mustache <laughs> yeah it really does it really does listeners look at the cover art <laughs> well if you have any opinions about the sonnets that we've talked about, uh, any other sonnets in the Holy Sonnets that we really should have talked about instead, or um, Im- uh, Im- impressions, opinions, or even imitations of Dunn's mustache, uh, <laughs> you can send those to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post them on the show notes for this episode uh, when it appears on christianhumanist.org our blog uh, you can also send them to us on facebook you can like us on facebook we like that if itunes is the way that you get to us uh, itunes reviews or something we crave it helps other people find us and we appreciate that what are we doing next week gentlemen we're going to be talking about a 1997 essay by martha nussbaum and michael is that how you pronounce that last name uh, hey, I don't know. That's a German last name. I think we all know my issues with pronouncing <laughs> all right, German. So, I've always but, said Nussbaum, but it may be Nussbaum. Or Nussbaum. It may be Nussbaum. I don't know. Mm-hmm. All right, so by next week, I'll try to find some YouTube clips where uh, somebody pronounces her name properly. Mm-hmm. But her essay is The Narrative Imagination. Uh, I think it's an interesting little exploration of what political role literature might play without necessarily making it strictly political so that's what we're going to do david excellent well we look forward to that and those of you of german descent can uh inform us on the proper pronunciation of 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 that name um but it'll already be too late because it'll be recorded before this even goes out so um no worries anyways uh i wish you all grand weeks on behalf of nathan gilmore and michael farmer the Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our uh, press liaison is the ubiquitous and multi-talented Kristen Philippic. Uh, our editor is Amberly Copeland. And I'll need, now leave you with words from Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong and let your faith be stronger.